And now as we come before God's word, I'll be reading from the gospel according to Luke in chapter 1. If you'd like to read with me, that's Luke chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord God, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you help us to see by it and help us to walk by it? Lord, in this moment, would you help us now to listen and to believe? Guide our hearing now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Luke in chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 26. You can just listen or read along with me. This is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Now, as a pastor and a teacher, I sometimes get asked, if I ever get tired of teaching and preaching the same Christmas texts every year? And the answer, if I'm honest, is no. There are parts of Christmas traditions that I do get tired of. I, I get tired of hearing the same 10 Christmas songs played in the grocery store over and over again about uh, who's kissing who and where and when and why. I just stop 
gearing. Call me a Scrooge if you want, I suppose. Uh, some is fine, but I get tired of some of the songs. Uh, but I, I really don't. I honestly don't get tired of reading the true story of Christmas from God's Word. And part of the reason for that is that each year I'm just reminded about how good this true story really is. And I like to be reminded of that in the same way that if you've got a book or a movie that you just really love, you probably enjoy watching it over and over and over again. Maybe you've got the same Christmas movie or movies that you play every year and you start to uh, quote lines to each other from them just because you know them so well. So, even if every Christmas I gave the exact same sermon, it would still be good for us to hear this part of God's word. Because it's God's word. This is life for us. This is God with us. But it's interesting that sermons are not the same every year, at least they don't have to be. Uh, we don't have to try to find some new or novel perspective to keep this story fresh. You know, we don't have to, to look at it from the perspective of the innkeeper when they went to find room there to stay. We don't, we, we don't have to try to look at it through the eyes of the donkey that Mary might have ridden into Bethlehem or, or the angels or, or you know, maybe the, the, the spider in the corner of the manger scene that, that weaves the words in her web, you know, some, some kid or something like that. You know, we don't have to come up with these new things. We know Jesus is really the main event here. And we want to keep it that way. And yet, still keeping Jesus as the center, there is so much happening around him that's pointing to him that it would take us days, weeks even, to unpack all of it. And all of these things serve to deepen our understanding and love for our God and what he has done for us in Jesus. So there's lots we could look at. This uh, Advent season... We're focusing our attention on one of those things that point us to Jesus, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in the event of Christmas. That's our focus in this month, the work of the Holy Spirit in the event of Christmas. We know that we worship one God, and he is in three persons, all of them fully divine, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of God. The Holy Spirit is not just a force. The Holy Spirit is not just a mood in the way that some think about the spirit of Christmas. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And as a person, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work here. If I can say it, busily at work here. This Sunday... We're going to focus our attention on probably his most famous work in Christmas, which is the virgin conception. Let me read it again. It's in chapter, verse, well, 35. Let me back up to 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 35. And the angel said to her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, this virgin conception is really central to our understanding of Jesus. It's in many historic Christian creeds, these statements of belief, you know, the Apostles' Creed, which we often use here, it's probably the most universal of all the Christian creeds, says it like this, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed, which we read this morning, says Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. And our denomination, our EPC essentials, the things that we hold most central, says Jesus became flesh through his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and his virgin birth. These are all just different ways of wording what is centrally true here. That Christ was conceived by the direct work of the Holy Spirit. And this is very important for us, but this reality is often challenged by critics of the faith. And there's lots of challenges they bring. So I just want to directly address, before we can move on, three of the primary accusations we hear about the virgin conception. I'll just pull out three of these accusations. Uh, The first is the accusation that the virgin conception is just legend or myth. So some would say, we see common things about powerful, especially powerful religious uh, figures in their birth narratives. So you sometimes hear this compared uh, on the History Channel, which isn't always a reliable source of religious things, but it's brought up this way. So Buddha, uh, the man who's the, uh, the Buddha, his mom... Uh, had a husband for 20 years, but she had a dream one night that uh, a white elephant holding a lotus flower walked around her three times and then entered into her womb from the right side. I don't know why the right side is important, but that's how the legend goes. And, And Horus... The Egyptian god, you know, the one with the falcon head, if you've seen him in pictures, uh, his mom had a husband for many years, but he died and was dismembered by someone. And so she, according to their legend, uh, resurrects her husband and reassembles him. And actually, a uh, side note, has to, uh, is missing some parts of him, so has to kind of create pieces, especially his, how do I say, his manhood, uh, so that they could conceive a child, uh, so that Horus would be born. And Alexander the Great, even, according to a legend, his mom had a dream on the night before her wedding. And and part of the dream is that a thunderbolt comes out of the sky and strikes her womb. So this is perhaps, you know, some of the way some say that Alexander the Great uh, was conceived. So some say, oh, you know, Jesus is just kind of in line with a lot of these things. In comparing Jesus to these sorts of things, they're saying that Jesus is much more like St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is a true historic person. There was a real man named uh, St. Nicholas, real man in time, in history, but over time, then he morphed into this sort of legendary figure who's got now the the red suit and the magic powers, and he's almost this sort of eternal spirit of Christmas. 
That's just the wrong way to read the gospel. That is not what Luke, the author of what we've just read, intends to tell us. That's not the way he wants us to read this. In fact, uh, if you read the whole gospel of Luke, you, you know that he opens his gospel talking about how he interviews eyewitnesses of the things he's reporting. And that it's his goal to, to give an orderly account of the narrative events in relation to Jesus. So Luke means to tell us that this really happened. The virgin conception was not just symbolic or spiritual in the sense that it wasn't real. This is not just a snowball that's rolling down a hill and picking up branches and leaves as it goes along. This happened within the lifetime even of the first readers of the Gospel of Luke. Now, that leads us to the second accusation. Some say, okay, all right, perhaps he is saying that this is true, but the, uh, but the virgin conception perhaps was a, a lie, was a cover-up. Luke might have said that Jesus was born of a virgin, but that wasn't actually true. And we know, if we're honest, Mary might have had motive to lie. If she'd conceived a child out of wedlock, here's an unwed girl and she's pregnant, what are people going to say? It's a child of God. There you go. Or, or perhaps Luke had some motive to lie. He, he's trying to amp up Jesus. He's trying to make him into a larger-than-life figure. Uh, we know that one uh, currently famous pastor, I will not mention his name, but he's a very bad pastor, um, he talked about and wrote about whether, whether or not all this happened, the virgin birth, maybe it's just not that big a deal. He said, what if, what if there were a DNA test and we found out that Jesus' dad is actually a guy named Larry? Would it really matter? And the answer to that is, yes, it would. It would matter a very big deal. It does matter for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is because if Luke and God in writing this is telling me that this is true and it isn't true, we've got an issue with credibility here. Can we really trust anything else that Luke is telling us? beside the fact that it's not a very good lie to begin with. I mean, if you've got a young woman who conceives a child out of wedlock, it's probably not going to be highly believable if you just said, you know, the Lord conceived it in my wombs. There's better lies we could come up with than this one. Who is going to believe something like that unless it's true? unless everything that Luke is telling us about Jesus really happened, as incredible as it sounds. From the beginning of Jesus' life in the virgin conception to the end of his life, when he dies and three days later comes back to life as a conqueror of death and sin. That brings us now to the third accusation. Okay, some people say, all right, Let's assume, then, that all of this really is true. But I still have one accusation for you. This virgin conception 
It is immoral of God to impregnate a young girl. You hear this more and more now. It's immoral of God to do this. And I want to be as clear as I can. While Mary does become pregnant with a child by the Holy Spirit here, she is not impregnated, at least not in the ways that we think about it. Mary has not been violated here. In fact, if we ask her what she thinks about it and we get a good bit of her response, there's challenging parts of this for sure. It would have been difficult for her family situation. But Mary's response to these things, after she gets over the initial shock, if you keep reading in Luke, her response is to sing. It's later in 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 this chapter one, she sings of things. She rejoices in the Lord as a result of this child. She calls herself blessed. She says, the Lord has done great things for me. Mary is not just trying to cope or deal with this. She is glad that it has happened. When the angel tells her in the text that we read that the Holy Spirit will, my translation says, come upon you, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, that's not quite the physical act as it sounds. We know Luke tells us in Acts, in the first chapter, that the disciples have the Holy Spirit come upon them. And that would be the way that they'd receive power and they'd be his witnesses So in all of these criticisms and these accusations against the virgin birth, what's really happening underneath it all is that folks are trying to rationalize this, trying to make sense of what is deeply mysterious. And we need to be careful about that. One author, you likely won't recognize his name and and you don't need to, Donald McLeod, he wrote a book called The Person of Christ and he talks about this uh, virgin conception this way. He says, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas and none of us must think of hurrying past it It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that everything that follows belongs to the same order as itself. And if we find this offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. If our faith staggers at the virgin birth, what are we going to make of the feeding of the 5,000, the stilling of the tempest, the raising of Lazarus, the transfiguration, the resurrection, and above all, the astonishing self-consciousness of Jesus? The virgin birth is God's gracious declaration at the very outset of the gospel that the act of faith is a legitimate sacrifice of the intellect. The act of faith is a legitimate sacrifice of the intellect. Now, what he means by saying we sacrifice our intellect in the virgin birth, it does not mean that we stop thinking. 
that faith somehow just makes us mindless lemmings who just follow and nod. That's not what we mean. It does mean that we have to sacrifice the idea that our intellect can get us to God. Paul says something very similar in his letter to the Corinthians. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross, here he's specifically talking about the cross of Jesus, but we could also say the virgin birth, the miracles. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? When we look at the virgin conception, there are difficult parts of this. And we're not going to make perfect sense in our minds of everything that happens there. But we do know that this is going to look like foolishness, like folly, like idiocy to some people. The scripture is saying here that Jesus the very Son of God, was conceived and descended through only one human parent. So he has a human nature. He's a son of Adam in that sense. And yet Jesus has another full nature. He is the divine, eternal Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot of difficult parts about this. This is going to be tough for us to grasp intellectually, and so lots of theological terms over the years have, have, have come up to talk about these things. Terms like hypostatic union and incarnation and theotokos. And if you don't know what those mean, that's okay. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll get to talk about what all those mean and sort through all those things. I, but I mention those terms now, not just to show off or try to look smart or impressive, but to show that there has been an immense amount of time and attention paid to these things. To try to rightly wrestle with and understand what is true about Jesus according to God's word so that we will not stumble into heresy and say wrong things about him or believe wrong things about him. I don't want to piece apart all of these details about his nature. This Christmas, remember, we're giving special attention to the work of the Holy Spirit as it relates to Jesus. So I want us to look closely at what the Spirit is actually doing here. This is where we'll head toward the end here. Verse 35 of Luke 1, I'll read it one more time. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is 
overshadowing this moment so that our vision of it is purposefully obscured. If we're readers of the whole Bible, and we are, we'll notice that the Lord is often veiled in clouds, not in the way we see him in drawings, but he is clouded over, especially in moments of intense contact with his people. So when the Lord gave his law, his Ten Commandments to the people of God on Mount Sinai, you remember that he descended in a thick cloud of smoke with thunder, lightning, the sound of trumpets coming from somewhere, and the people watched as Moses entered up into that thick cloud. Later then in Numbers, when the people were wandering in the wilderness coming out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, they were guided by the Lord in the form of a cloud who glowed like fire when it was nighttime. This was the presence of the Lord to them, both seen and unseen. And then later when they're in the land and, and, they, and they've settled down and they've built the temple and they bring in the Ark of the Covenant or the, the, the presence of God, a cloud of the glory of God descends and filled the temple so thick that the priests could not minister there. And then when Jesus comes, walking on the earth, talking, interacting, when he goes up on the mountain to pray with his disciples, and he's transfigured, in the moment where he begins to glow white and Moses and Elijah appears with him, there's a moment in which a cloud overshadows him and a voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And when he's on the cross when he is taking on the sin of all believers and the wrath of the Father in his final hours, he is shrouded with a cloud of darkness. In a very similar way, this event of Christmas this virgin conception where the eternal Son of God is now taking on flesh this moment is so profound in God's interaction with man that the Holy Spirit overshadows it to keep us from prying too far into its mysteries. Now for clarity, when we call this moment mysterious, because it is, when we call these things mysterious, we are not saying that everything about God is mysterious. That we just can't know those things about God because, you know, he's God and he's mysterious. No, God has revealed very much about himself and ourselves to us through his word. He's given us a lot. We know much about him. We know he creates with goodness and beauty and fullness. We know he is holy and that he calls us to holiness by his grace. We, we know he's the judge of sin and, and he's a tower over evil. We know that he's the savior of sinners. So if anyone just kind of shrugs off God as being all mysterious, they're wrong. 
And they're probably just making their own God in their own image. God has revealed to us very much, and yet he has not revealed and will not reveal everything. He's God. And as God, he infinitely transcends us. So there are aspects of him that are clouded in, ministry, in mystery. You know, if you're driving in a fog, if you try to turn on your brights in a fog so that you can see better, you will not see more, but only see less. It is not wrong to want to know things about God. It's not even wrong to humbly ask him why certain things happen, to try to seek answers from him. In fact, we see that happening in Mary, and she's not rebuked for it. She says, uh, wait, I know how this works. I'm a virgin. How am I going to conceive a child? And yet, when we ask questions of the Lord... We also have to acknowledge that sometimes those answers won't come. Or at least sometimes the answers will come only in a cloud. Perhaps you know what that's like in your own life. Perhaps you're actually in a season right now where the Lord feels like he has shrouded things in a cloud. You wonder, what is the Lord doing here? He may give answer, he may not, but we at least know that you are not alone in your wonderings. We know that Job was caught in a sea of questions after he lost everything. He lost everything he owned. He lost his health, and he lost all of his kids. And so he spends, in the book of Job, 35 chapters wrestling with this with his friends, trying to figure out what reason this might be for, and he's asking for, begging for an audience with the Lord so that he can present his case before God. He's not arrogant necessarily in those moments. He just wants to know. And finally, the Lord comes. The Lord comes and answers Job out of a whirlwind, out of a cloud. And he says this. This is in Job chapter 38, verse 4. The Lord says to Job, Where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors? when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, I prescribed limits for it 
and set bars and doors. And I said, thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. In other words, the Lord says to Job, when I created the earth, I set up measurements on its edges. And when I made the clouds, I prescribed their limits. And when I laid out the seas, I stayed the waves so that they can only go so far. Don't you think it's the same of you? When I created you with knowledge, thus far shall you come and no farther. We know he has set us with limits, especially in our relation to God. And there's an aspect of this when the Lord comes to Job this way. There's an aspect of it that's rebuke. The Job in the end repents of his sin, perhaps of pride. But there's an also an aspect of this that is comfort. That in the end, even though Job doesn't get the answers he wants, he's able to lay his burdens to rest in the deep mysteries of God. When the Holy Spirit brings the virgin to conceive the child Christ. He overshadows this in the mysteries of a cloud. And this is a gift to us. It's an act of love and grace to show us that all of this saving work in Jesus is his work not ours. And that will help us to surrender to God, to trust God, to say to him, you are the Lord and I am your servant. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to love these truths, to love the fact that there is even some measure of mystery about you, even in all that you've revealed? Because it's a reminder that you are God and we are not. Help us to look upon this with reverent silence that will lead us to worship. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.